Well, good morning, everyone. You know, one of the joys uh, and privileges of doing multi-site ministry is that um, able to uh, step away for things like our men's retreat uh, this past week and, and Pastor Kurt willing to, to fill the pulpit. Um, one of the, da- the, the drawbacks, and I say this facetiously as you'll uh, soon find out, is um, that when you come across a passage that you really want to preach and you don't get to preach it, uh, you actually have to cancel the service uh, for you uh, to, to have a chance to preach that. And of course, that's not the reason we, we canceled uh, last week. Just um, that said, excited that uh, able to go through um, this passage with us this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. And I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Would you pray with me? Father, as we approach your word, we ask that even now you would be at work in our hearts, helping us, preparing us to hear from you. Lord, it is our desire to be a people who hear your word and respond in faith and obedience. And God, while that's our prayer, every single time we gather, we specifically now ask that you would help us to respond to this text in faith and obedience. I pray that you would help us to be men and women and boys and girls who take your word and see how it affects and transforms and makes a demand of every area of our our lives. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to take a poll of what people consider to be the weirdest or most troubling stories in the Bible, I imagine that Jesus' interactions with this fig tree uh, would would definitely be at the top of the list. Now, if you've been in in the Gospel of Mark with us for for some time, uh, I'm I'm convinced uh, that I'm I'm quite confident that that you would be able to see what Mark is doing here. Contrary to what some people say, this is not an example of vindictive fury from Jesus on this helpless fig tree. Uh, It's not something that tarnishes his reputation. It isn't something where one person said it's a tale of miraculous power completely wasted in the service of an ill temper. And, and uh, structure is, is really important for us here in this passage. This story starts with this story of Jesus in the fig tree, and then it transitions to Jesus in the temple, and then it transi- transitions back to Jesus and the fig tree. And if you've been with us much during this series as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you probably remember that Mark actually does this affair 
bit. He starts with a story, he transitions to another story, and then he comes back to the original story. It's kind of like a sandwich. It's got two pieces of bread, something in the middle. And these stories are meant to be read together because they provide deeper insight for us than they would on their own. And that's certainly the case for us here. Read together, we can probably see the connections between these two passages. This isn't just a moment of vindictive fury from Jesus on this fig tree, but instead it's actually an acted out parable for us, much like what we see in the Old Testament from, from prophets from time to time. And read in conjunction with the story of the fig tree, the passage commonly referred to as the cleansing of the temple is probably a misleading title. I think it would be more accurate to describe this section as the judgment of the temple, not just the cleansing of the temple. And that's actually going to be our structure this morning. We're going to work our way through this passage, first just looking at uh, Jesus' judgment on the fig tree, and then we'll look at Jesus' judgment on the temple. But before we do that, because it's been a couple weeks, uh, let's just remind ourselves of where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They are here for the celebration of the Passover We know from the rest of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is going to be crucified later this week. Our our passage this morning likely takes place on Monday, as well as uh, the end of it on on Tuesday morning, and Jesus is crucified on the Friday that comes after that. In the the passage right before this that we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem, and he's surrounded by these crowds, and they're crying out to him, Hosanna. And to those who were paying attention to everything that was taking place, it seemed as though this is going to be the moment where Jesus is crowned the king, where he kicks the Romans out, and his, his kingdom is, is established forever. But that's not how the previous passage ends. Remember how it ends in verse 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here's Jesus, he gets to Jerusalem, he comes to the temple, and nothing happens. There's no coronation ceremony. Priests, religious leaders aren't there waiting for him. Even the crowd that arrived with Jesus to Jerusalem, it's disappeared and dissipated. Jesus enters into the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves. Remember how Mark starts his gospel. He's quoting from the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He gives us the first line of this verse in Malachi. It's important for us to recognize that Mark is actually intending for us to read the entire context of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Let's just stop right there. Because in Mark chapter 11, we see this passage being fulfilled. Jesus, the Lord, has come to his temple, and no one is waiting for him. Everyone goes about their own business. Even though God sent a messenger before him to prepare his people for his return, that's John the Baptist, No one is waiting for Jesus when he comes into the temple. So how will Jesus respond? Well, that's what our text today answers. First, let's look at Jesus judging the fig tree, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
So Jesus and his disciples are not staying in Jerusalem for the Passover. They're staying in a small town of Bethany. Uh, it's about two miles, less than two miles from Jerusalem. On their way back to Jerusalem the next morning after the triumphal entry, Jesus sees this fig tree, and because he's hungry, he plans on grabbing a snack. But when he gets to the fig tree, he notices that there aren't any figs, and there's just leaves. What's more, Mark gives us this parenthetical comment that we actually shouldn't even be expecting there to be figs because it's not the season for figs yet. And then Jesus, in response, he, he curses the fig tree or pronounces judgment on it, and then he heads to Jerusalem. What's going on here? Well, we mentioned it earlier, like the Old Testament prophets before him, Jesus is acting out this parable of judgment. He's capitalizing on his very real hunger, on his very real disappointment, and he he uses that to provide this unforgettable, tangible lesson to his disciples of what is about to happen, what he is about to do in the temple. A little bit of, of background here on figs and, and the fig harvest. Uh, before this, all I, I didn't even know what a fig looked like. I, I just thought of fig newtons. That's not what they look like. The fig harvest was in September, October, or excuse me, August, September, and October each year. And after the harvest of, of the figs, the fig tree would actually begin to produce these little buds. And these little buds would remain undeveloped throughout the winter. And then in March and in April, these little buds would begin to develop into what was basically a prefig, and they called these a, a pagine. After the prefigs, the, the tree, after it had sprouted these, these prefigs, then it would start to sprout leaves. It wasn't until after they had started to develop these prefigs that it would begin to sprout leaves. And those leaves would begin to show in April, and then after that, then those prefigs would begin to grow and mature and ripen into through the rest of the, of the growth season into full figs, April, September, um, excuse me, August, September, October for the harvest. Notice then that if a fig tree is, if a fig tree has leaves, then you would expect it to have fruit. It is one of the only trees in nature that it begins to bear fruit before it sprouts leaves. So if you saw a fig tree with leaves, you would also expect it to be loaded with these prefigs. In contrast, if you saw a, a, a fig tree without, with leaves but without the prefigs, it would not bear any fruit that year. It would have missed its opportunity to bear fruit. So here is Jesus. He's walking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's the beginning of April 30 AD when he encounters this fig tree full of leaves. And that's not terribly uncommon. It's a little early. It's, it's a beautiful tree. It's a little early for when the leaves begin to, to show. But he, he comes over to this, this beautiful fig tree. And what he expects to see, uh, the beginning of fruit, he instead encounters nothing. There's no fruit. No sign of future fruit. In fact, what looks beautiful from a distance is barren. And for all intents and purposes, it's useless when he gets close. So Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach his disciples about what he is about to do in the temple. And he casts judgment on the fig tree. The disciples see, but they do not understand. Jesus has acted out parable. Mark doesn't give us any explanation, at least not yet. We'll have to wait until the story of Jesus in the temple and then the the conclusion of the story a couple verses later from the next day. But before we even get to that, I think we can recognize at least two important points. First, 
Uh, and there are points we've already mentioned. First, based off the structure of this passage, we can see that it is a parable. Jesus is not losing his temper. He is, he's teaching his disciples with a very memorable visual aid. Second, because Jesus curses the fig tree, he is in essence casting judgment upon the fig tree. And if he's judging the fig tree for its lack of fruit, it's probably more appropriate not to think of verses 15 through 19 as Jesus cleansing the temple, but instead Jesus is judging the temple for its lack of fruit. And that's what we see as a result of Jesus' actions here. That's what the parable of the fig tree is about. Verses 15 through 19, Jesus judges the temple. But before we look at Jesus actually casting judgment or judging the temple, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of the significance of the temple for the Jews. In essence, the temple was the sign of God's presence and blessing with Israel. It was the most important part of worship for the Jewish people. So think back to the stories of the Old Testament. One of the um, most well-known stories of the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. God calls, calls Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament, and he declares that they are going to be his people. He will be their God. And as a part of this relationship, as a part of this covenant between the two of them, God asks that Israel would keep his law while he promises that he will dwell among them in what is called the tabernacle. And this is just a, a very elaborate tent, in essence. Tabernacle is central to Israel's worship in the Old Testament. It's the place where God is said to dwell. It's the only places where sacrifices are acceptable before God. This is the place where the priests minister before God. In a very real sense, the tabernacle becomes associated with Jewish worship of God. True, right worship is focused in the tabernacle. Now fast forward a couple hundred years, and the people of Israel now live in the land. They have a good, wonderful king, King David. And King David, as he has established himself in Jerusalem, he's got his own palace, and he, he has this desire to build God a temple because God continues to dwell in what he considers to be a tent while David dwells in a house. And, and there's this interaction and interchange between God and, and David, and God says, no, I, I'm not going to have you build me uh, a temple. It's going to be your son, Solomon. And so in the next generation, David's son, Solomon, builds this temple, and this temple replaces the tabernacle as the center of Israel's worship. Everything that was significant about the tabernacle, everything that was important about the tabernacle now is transferred to this temple. The tabernacle fades into existence and everything that makes it important and significant is now true about the temple. So Solomon's temple exists for a, a couple hundred years and goes through seasons of neglect, goes through seasons of reform until the year 586 BC. This is a, an important year in Israel's history. This is when the temple was actually destroyed by the Babylonians. This was a sign of, of judgment from God on the people of Israel because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry. It is predicted in a number of the prophets that this type of judgment is coming on Israel. And as one can imagine, if the temple holds this place of such importance for the people of Israel, for their worship, for their natural, national identity, the destruction of the temple is absolutely devastating for these people. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Seventy years after the temple is destroyed, the people of Israel begin the process of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. This new temple is completed about 500 years before Jesus' uh, walking the earth, before Jesus is born. But those who saw this new temple, this second temple, 
And those who saw Solomon's original temple, the Bible actually tells us that they wept because it was a shell compared to the glory of what came before it. Now, we could get more in, uh, go into more depth about the second temple, but I just want to fast forward several hundred years uh, to 20 B.C., because this is an important moment uh, for us to understand what's taking place here. 20 B.C., second temple is still around, and then King Herod, we all know who King Herod is, decides that he is going to renovate and expand the temple. Even though he's not a Jew, he, he decides that this is one of the things that he wants to do. So in 20 BC, he starts this renovation project, this expansion project. It's so expansive that even though he starts 20 years before Christ is born, roughly, it isn't completed until 64 AD. So over uh, almost an 85-year renovation project. You thought your house projects were taking a long time. Jesus' ministry takes place about 50 years after this renovation begins, and it would be another 35 years before it is completed. Now, how, how is it taking so long? Well, it's because the temple is so massive. One Jewish historian from the first century tells us that Herod's temple has a footprint of 35 acres. Now, to put that into perspective for those of you who uh, are like me and, and just can't fully grasp what that means... Uh, the plot of land that this property sits on, or the, that this church facility sits on, the, the property here, uh, from the back trees out there all the way to the road, from the side of the parking lot and those trees all the way to the east side of this property, is about seven acres. So the footprint of Herod's temple is about five times the size of this property. Now, I found some, uh, what I thought to be helpful pictures compare the size of Solomon's temple uh, to Herod's temple, and, and something that we're all relatively familiar with, and a football field. So here's a picture uh, of Solomon's temple in the context of a football field. Let's go ahead and throw that up. And, and yes, if you're wondering, for yes, this is Gillette Stadium. That's where the Patriots play. Don't ask me why the artist chose uh, that. I mean, he could have picked Arrowhead Stadium, uh, but we won't go there. So here's a picture uh, comparing Solomon's temple to the size of a football field. And now let's go ahead and throw the next picture up here comparing Herod's temple to the size of that same stadium. And in all actuality, this picture actually underestimates the size of Herod's temple, but it gives us a, a closer picture of understanding of what this temple looked like. This place is massive. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that it was made of gleaming white marble and, and gold so that when the sun hit it just right, it was impossible to look at because you would be blinded. And this is the temple complex that Jesus enters on Monday morning. Now, before we enter or jump into our text this morning, I just want to talk about one other distinction between the first temple and the second temple. In the first temple, Solomon's temple, the only distinction that was made in the temple uh, complex was between the priest and the non-priest. In other words, there was a place where the priests alone could go, and of course then there was the, whole, the most holy place where only the high priest could go, but everything else in the temple complex was, uh, was a place where anyone else was welcome to come and worship. The only distinction in the Old Testament in that temple was between the priests and the non-priests. That's not the case in the second temple. Second temple was split into four different areas or four different courts. Let's go ahead and throw that next picture up here. It'll help us see these different sections. Outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place where the non-Jews were allowed to enter. 
There were signs that were actually posted throughout the temple along this wall, separating the outer court from the courts further in, that, that said that if you were not a Jew, if you were a Gentile, and you entered past this point, you were actually inviting your own death. And you can see in this picture uh, the, the shaded in part. That's where the, the court of the Gentiles is located. Second area to mention is the court of the women. Jewish women were allowed to go this far in their worship, not any further. This, section, uh, this is actually in the temple complex, and you can see again where the shaded in area is, uh, four pillars at the center of the picture. Third area, let's go ahead and throw that one up. Third area is the court of Israel, which is just to the left of the court of women. This is uh, the place where only ritually pure, only circumcised Jewish men allowed to enter into the temple complex. This is actually where the, the offerings were made. Uh, you can see the altar here in the picture. And then the fourth area is called the holy place. And this is uh, inside the temple construct itself. This is the place that is off limits to anyone uh, except for the priests. And, and of course, further into the holy place is the most holy place, the place where only the high priest is allowed to enter. So Jesus arrives at this temple complex and when he arrives, he likely comes in through the south, through this massive colonnade called the Royal Stoa. You can see it at the south side of this picture. And from the context, we can surmise that Jesus' actions in Mark 11, 15 through 19, they most likely take place in the court of the Gentiles, this large, large area here around the temple. I know that's a lot of background for you, a lot more than we normally go through, but I do promise, I, I think that this is a really important uh, foundation for us to understand the full weight of Jesus' actions here. Let's pick up again in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus and his disciples, they enter the temple Monday morning. Tens of thousands of other worshipers are alongside them. And they go, instead of all the way to the court of Israel to offer a sacrifice, as Jesus and his disciples, as Jewish men that were ritually pure, would have been able to do, they actually stop in the court of the Gentiles. Now, we are, you know, 2,000 years separated from the celebration of the Passover in the first century at, at this massive temple complex. I don't think we can fully understand the significance of the Passover in the first century. It was expected that all Jewish men would have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. There they would offer a sacrifice of a lamb for themselves and for their family. I mentioned this man, Josephus, uh, earlier in, in our sermon, and uh, he was writing about 30 years after Jesus, Jesus and, and he, as a historian, described the Passover uh, in, in the 60s in Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and he said that over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered in the temple during the week of the Passover. 250,000 lambs. And even if he is exaggerating that number, that's a number beyond anything that we can comprehend of the, of the industry that's taking place for the worship of the people at this time. Now, the, for the Jewish pilgrims who arrived for the celebration of the Passover, there'd be two things that they were required to do. First, they would need to purchase an animal for their sacrifice, the lamb that needed to be sacrificed. And I say purchase 
because there were actually provisions and even expectations in the Old Testament that if you had a journey a far distance, a relatively far distance to Jerusalem, then you weren't actually expected to bring an animal with you. There was this concession that was made in the Old Testament for people who live far away, for them to be able to worship, they would, they would come to Jerusalem and purchase an animal there for their sacrifice. This is actually one of the ways that the temple could guarantee that, that pure, clean animals were being sacrificed as if they were the ones who raised them. For those who would be able to afford it, they were to offer a lamb. For those who were a little poor, they, would be able, or they were to purchase a dove or a pigeon for their sacrifice. And notice actually in Mark 11, it tells us uh, there's an intentional mention of, of pigeons here. This is something that has to do with the poor or the outcasts. So the second thing that the, or the first thing that they would have to do is, is purchase this animal for their sacrifice. The second thing the pilgrims were required to do was to pay the temple tax. Now, to complicate things, the Roman Empire did not allow Israel to have their own currency. And they, they didn't allow them to have their own currency. And the official Roman currency contained this pagan declaration that Caesar was God. And of course, this would be unacceptable for the Jewish people, something that they wouldn't offer in their temple. So they, before they could offer the temple tax, they'd actually have to exchange their Roman currency for what would be considered acceptable currency. And, and Tyre, located about 100 miles from Jerusalem, had their own currency, the, tire, uh, the shekel of Tyre. And, and you would have to exchange your Roman currency for these shekels. And once you had exchanged your money in the proper currency and you had acquired your animal, then you were allowed to proceed in your celebration of the Passover. It's very, very elaborate and intense here, isn't it? So at its core, what we see here is that this idea of purchasing sacrificial animals, this idea of, of exchanging money, is not only not a bad thing, it's actually crucial to right and true worship that is expected of these people. So what's Jesus' problem here? Well, we can look at archaeological evidence and, and we see that originally the place where you would purchase these animals... The, the place where you would exchange your money was actually located on the Mount of Olives, just to the east of Jerusalem. But as time went on, it was deemed to be more expedient to have the sacrificial animals and the money, exchange, money exchanging stations to be a little closer to the temple. And so this, this business was actually moved from the Mount of Olives and it was moved to the Royal Stoa, this colonnaded section that we saw uh, in that picture, that, that image of, of the temple earlier. But as you can imagine, with tens of, of thousands of pilgrims that they're coming to Jerusalem during the Passover, they need to buy animals, they need to exchange currency during the Passover, this operation would have to expand, you know, just like when you're at the checkout uh, at the grocery store and they need to open another checkout line. That's exactly what is taking here, place here. This operation needs to expand to, to accommodate the mass of humanity that comes during Passover week. And so money changers and and animal sellers would do exactly what is natural. They don't want to miss out on the business of being so close to the temple itself. And they don't want to go back to the Mount of Olives. They want to stay as close as they possibly can to the royal stoa, to the temple. And so they actually begin to creep into the only place that is left. And that is the temple itself. Specifically, the court of the Gentiles. And this is infuriating to Jesus, and he causes quite the disruption here. He's so upset about what is taking place that he actually begins to throw out not only the sellers, as though they are taking advantage of people, but also the buyers, those who are purchasing these animals. 
The word drive here is used uh, several times in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually used to, to refer to the times where Jesus casts out demons. This is a, a forceful action here. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing to the people that are in the temple, that are buying and selling. Jesus casts them out of the temple, and he doesn't stop there either. He approaches these tables full of money, and he actually flips them over. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Clay County Fair here every September, I want you to just purchase the first Saturday of the fair on a perfect, beautiful weather day. It's one of the, the busiest places you, know, you can imagine. Imagine that, that main drag, you know what I'm talking about, where all the food is sold just outside of the grandstand entrance. And I want you to imagine that rather than these protected booths and rather than these protected trailers that are brought in, each of these vendors that is selling stuff only has a table. Now picture in the, med- in the midst of this sea of humanity where you can barely move through it because there are so many people there that someone begins to flip over the tables of merchandise. Money is thrown everywhere. Merchandise is thrown everywhere. It begins forcefully pushing people toward the exits in anger. It would cause quite a commotion here, wouldn't it? That's a glimpse of Jesus in this moment. The question, of course, is why? Why does Jesus do this? We understand that he is angry, but why is he angry? Mark tells us that after he does this, Jesus begins to teach the people in the temple. His teaching would have been longer than what we have in verse 17, but verse 17 is the heart of it. And it's really distilled down to two key points, both in verse 17, both quotations from the Old Testament. Let's read verse 17 again. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it den of robbers. Jesus' sermon here explains his action. And it's based on these two texts from the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, 7, Jeremiah 7, 11. Now we've said this before when we look at passages in the New Testament that quote the Old Testament. It's worth repeating this morning. When the New Testament quotes a verse from the Old Testament, it does so assuming that you'll actually flip back and read the passage in the Old Testament. It does so assuming that you will read the rest and understand the rest of the context to understand the full weight of what is being said. Jesus doesn't rip a verse out of context here. He he expects us to understand the verse that he quotes in the context of Isaiah 56. So let's look at these passages. First Isaiah 56, then Jeremiah uh, 7, to understand what Jesus is saying here. First, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, this is this beautiful passage about God's plan to save people, not just to save Israel, but also to save the nations as well. Let's just look at Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. This gives us a pretty good glimpse of what Jesus is, is communicating here. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument 
and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's a powerful passage. Notice that God is promising salvation to those who are normally excluded. Salvation is coming for the foreigners. It's coming for the eunuchs. It's coming for the outcasts. Remember when we talked about the different courts in the temple, each of these groups would have been excluded from entering beyond the court of the Gentiles in the first century. The Jewish religious system made allowances for their worship, but it was only as second-class citizens, if that. They would be allowed to go to the court of Gentiles, but no further. But that's not what God promises is coming in his kingdom for the nations and the eunuchs and the outcasts. According to Isaiah, there will be no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Note verse 6 again. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. Just stop right there. Notice. That the, the foreigners who pursue the Lord will be granted full access to God. But not only that, they will also be ministers before him. This is priestly language. They will actually become priests of the Lord Most High. This unthinkable prospect in Jesus' day. So why is Jesus so upset? Well, first, it's because the temple has become a far cry from God's plan for it. It was meant to be a place where all the nations could encounter God himself, but the Jewish system had been set up in such a way that the nations were second-class citizens at best. And what's more, the, the court of the Gentiles, the only place where they could worship, is actually becoming this virtual marketplace, this, worship pla this place for worship that's all but impossible for the Gentiles. The Jewish temple, far from being a place where everyone, no matter your social status, no matter your ethnic background, become this place where it's impossible for certain people to worship, namely the Gentiles, the eunuchs, and the outcasts. And this infuriates Jesus. His Father's plan for true worship for all people cannot happen in the current context. Right, true worship cannot, is not happening in the temple. Second, Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7. This is an even greater condemnation of the first century temple practices. Jeremiah 7 records the prophet Jeremiah standing up in the temple, and he's calling to the people of his day, and he's calling them to repent because of how they were treating the temple. In Jeremiah's day, the people were continuing to go through the religious rituals of the day, and yet they were living immoral, sinful lifestyles. What's more, they were actually using the temple as an excuse 
as an excuse for their sin because God would forgive them anyway. Does that sound familiar? In Jeremiah's day, the people are even using the temple as a byword to cover up the seriousness of their sins. They would repeat it over and over as a sign of immunity. It's okay because we got the temple. Yeah, I know that's bad, but we got the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You get to say it three times and then you're fine. God responds, Jeremiah 4, or 7, 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple was meant to drive people to true worship, which was always coupled with repentance. But instead, the people in Jeremiah's day, and by extension, in Jesus' day as well, because he quotes this passage, were using the temple much like a bandit uses his hidden cave as a place of safety. That's the imagery of verse 11 in Jeremiah chapter 7, the, the verse that Jesus alludes to. The people of Israel, like bandits who, who pillage and rob and murder and steal and rape, and then they come back to their den to hide for safety. The people in, Israel, uh, in, in Jeremiah's day and, and in Jesus' day would lie, cheat, steal, worship other gods, sleep around, take advantage of their neighbors, but at the end of the day, they would say, you know, it's okay because we got the temple, God's with us, and he'll forgive us anyway. By quoting this passage, alluding to Jeremiah 7, 11, Jesus is saying the exact same thing is true for Israel in the first century. This temple is stunning. It is magnificent, beautiful. Words fail to describe the majesty and the beauty of the temple in the first century. The celebration of the Passover would have been this incredible moment, this incredible sign of religious devotion for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people with hundreds of thousands of animals slaughtered. All these people coming all over the world to worship God. But Jesus is the Lord of the temple and he sees the decay. He sees the barrenness. He sees the lack of repentance. He sees the hypocrisy. He sees the lack of true worship. He sees that the temple is exactly like a fig tree with leaves beautiful, but without any fruit. And because of that, judgment is coming. That's how the passage ends with the result of Jesus' judgment on the fig tree the next day. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The next day, the disciples see this fig tree that Jesus had judged, and it's withered away to its roots. It will never return. The implication, of course, is that the temple that Jesus just judged is going to face the same end. Jesus says the exact same thing a couple chapters later, Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, 
what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Judgment is coming to the temple. And we know from Israel's history, if you're familiar with the first century, that it's destroyed just a generation after Jesus is destroyed in, in 70 AD. It's destroyed to this day. The temple was destroyed because even though it looked beautiful, even though it looked impressive, even though it looked majestic, even though it was filled with tens of thousands of people going through the rituals of worship, it was like a fig tree without fruit. So as we close... I want each and every one of us to really wrestle with the question that this passage is forcing us to ask ourselves. Am I bearing fruit? Or am I just leaves? Am I bearing fruit? Or am I just leaves? The very fact that you are here this morning in worship on a Sunday morning, not all that common these days. The very fact that you are here this morning, relatively good indication that you are at least like a fig tree that has leaves. You've gathered for, for public worship. Perhaps your neighbors aren't doing that. You at least have leaves. What remains to be seen, of course, is if you have fruit, too. So ask yourself, am I bearing fruit or am I just leaves? Jesus judges the people of Israel because they're only concerned with the external actions of worship, not with true, costly worship, worship that costs repentance. What about you? For me, Jesus' quotation from Jeremiah 7 strikes a bit too close to home at times. It's chilling to think of how often I see in the church today and feel in my own heart at times this attitude condemned by Jesus, this attitude that doesn't emphasize the importance of repentance because you know what? God's gonna forgive me anyway. That's his job after all. True worship is always coupled with the fruit of repentance. It is always quick to respond to the conviction of the Spirit with obedience. And Jesus brings judgment on the temple because it has divorced these two things. Worship and fruit. What about you? Are you bearing fruit? Or you just leaves. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this passage, we do so earnestly hoping that you would, in your spirit, make clear to us our hearts. 
Help us to see whether we are bearing fruit or whether we are just going through the external actions of religious devotion. God, we ask for forgiveness for the times all too often where we are like a barren fig tree, full of leaves, but without fruit. Help us, God, to glorify you in true worship, not through religious acts, but instead with a heart that follows you wholeheartedly because of your Son, and in his name we pray. Amen.